so, as Naomi said, we're, we're finishing off uh, the book of uh, Colossians, or the letter to, to the Colossians, I should, I should say. Uh, and uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, as he did, I don't know how many, but many of the other um, New Testament letters. Sometimes when we imagine Paul, we think of him as this, as this lone ranger who was sort of wandering around the Middle East and Europe all by himself. That he took the gospel to the nations all on his own. That he strenuously contended for all these churches that he was planting and pastoring uh, all on his own. In our minds, he was this sort of lone ranger. He did not need any help and therefore he did not have any help. But not so, right? Paul had... Paul had many co-workers, men and women, who helped. And so Colossians 4 is not just, it's not just further instructions, final greetings. It's actually a picture of the teamwork that was going on. Here we find ordinary believers such as um, Archippus, etc., who together with Paul achieved extraordinary things. And so today we're going to meet some of them. And I have three simple points to keep us on track. Uh, one, there is no I in team. Two, uh, gospel work is teamwork. And three, you've got to be willing to, to take one for the team. And so first, there is no I in team. Yes, Paul was this pioneer on the frontier, but it was a team effort. It was a team effort. So meet Tychicus in uh, verses 7 or 8 there. Tychicus, will, Paul writes, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is described here as a dear brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. Right? Paul was not this narcissist who had little minions running around doing his bidding. No, he had brothers and sisters. He had co-workers. And this fellow, Tychicus, was an especially reliable colleague. Elsewhere we read that Paul had sent him to Titus to relieve Titus. <coughs> he sent him to the church in Ephesus to encourage the church in Ephesus. And here he delivers this, this letter to, to the Colossians, along with Onesimus in, in 4 verse 9. Onesimus describes our faithful and dear brother who is, who is one of you. Now, it's actually quite interesting. Onesimus was actually a runaway slave. He's a runaway slave. And he had robbed his master Philemon and had fled to Rome, big city where he could effectively disappear. But he runs into none other than Paul and is converted. He becomes a Christian. It's such a good story. It's such a good story. But here's the thing. Philemon lived in, Coloss in Colossae. The church met at his house. And so Paul actually sent two letters, this one to the Colossians and another to Philemon himself. And in that one, Paul pleased with Philemon to accept Onesimus back. So you can imagine Onesimus, a slave, sort of nervously handing this letter to his owner to his master, whom he had 
robbed from, stolen from, and then run away. And then you can imagine uh, Philemon opening the letter up and reading this <coughs> from Paul. Perhaps the reason he, that's Anisimus, was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. The story of Onesimus is one of grace, one of hope. Where the slave becomes this dear brother. Only the gospel can do that, right? And then there were three Jewish Christians, um, Aristarchus and Mark and uh, Jesus, also called Justice. And we know some of these guys too. We know from Acts, for example, that Aristarchus had been with Paul in prison. He'd been with Paul in the midst of the Ephesian riot. He'd been with Paul in the shipwreck off the coast of of Malta. Paul was not alone, right? Mark, meanwhile, his story is a story of redemption. Mark had abandoned Paul on Paul's first missionary journey and so Paul refuses to take him on his second missionary journey. But what happens is actually his cousin Barnabas, whom we read of elsewhere, this is Mark's cousin, we read of Barnabas elsewhere in the New Testament, he encourages Mark. And so by this time we actually find Mark (coughs) with Paul in prison. He hadn't abandoned Paul this time. Paul's not alone. <clears throat> and then there was Epaphras. Now, Epaphras, we've come across Epaphras before, <clears throat> even in Colossians. Epaphras had um, planted and pastored the church in Colossae, but he was now uh, in prison with Paul, and there he prays. He's this prayer warrior. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, He's always um, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Now, if you've been uh, with us um, on our journey through Colossians, you'll know that actually the Colossians, unlike so many of the other churches to whom Paul has to write, they are standing firm. They are standing firm. But Epaphras doesn't wait until they're not to pray for them. They are standing firm, and so he prays that they might continue. To stand firm. They are in danger, as we are all the time, of compromise, <clears throat> whether it come from those who would capture them with human philosophy or judge them by religious observances or um, disqualify them, exclude them by their lack of spiritual experiences. Instead, he prays that they may be mature and fully assured. Fully assured. And in the context of Colossians, It means this, this is effectively a prayer that they knew, that they know, that Jesus was all they needed. That's maturity in the book of Colossians. Jesus was all they needed. That's the message of Colossians, that's Epaphras' prayer. Next there is um, uh, Demas, uh, and uh, sorry, Luke and Demas. Uh, We know Luke as the author of uh, his gospel, Luke's gospel, (coughs) also as the author of, of Acts. But Demas' story is more of a tragedy. We know actually from elsewhere in the Bible that Demas would later defect. He would later defect. In the last letter that Paul ever wrote, 
we learn that Demas abandoned Paul because he'd come to love the world. He'd come to love the world. It's heartbreaking. People may look totally committed to Jesus and his gospel, may even believe themselves to be totally committed, only to be taken captive by the basic beliefs, guiding principles of this world. Now, it may be that you've, you've actually seen this happen to someone close to you, a friend, family member, perhaps someone who has been connected <clears throat> with us here at TMPC. And it's painful, isn't it? I have friends whom I went to Bible college with. So this is eight years ago now, something like that. Friends whom I studied with, did life with, went on mission with, who have walked away from the faith. No one is immune from the infectious influence of of the world, which is why we've got to take this message seriously, right? We've got to let the message of Christ dwell richly among us as we encourage one another and admonish one another in all wisdom. Paul refers to another fella, Archippus. Paul writes, see to it, to him, he says, tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly who this guy was, but clearly he needed a word of encouragement to not give up. And of course, we also read of Nympha, whom uh, the church, one of the churches was meeting in her house. So these were Paul's fellow gospel workers, his fellow evangelists, his fellow missionaries, his fellow <coughs> pastors, his fellow elders, his team, if you will. And there is no iron team. They all had their part to play. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, even Demas, and Archippus, and Nympha. But actually, before he mentions any of these people, he first speaks to the church. He first effectively calls the church his co-workers. So the second thing that we learn about gospel work is that gospel work is teamwork. And if you are a Christian, then you're on the team. It's nice, isn't it? You're on the team. And so he writes to the church in Colossae. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. And pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. So first, Paul would actually ask the Colossians to pray for those who have been called to this ministry of teaching and preaching, people like he, people like Timothy, etc., The point is that while not everyone is called to that particular work, this particular work, everyone can pray for it. Everyone can pray for it. Or you can think of it like this, right? All Christians are soldiers. But we're to pray for for those on the front line. Effective evangelism begins with prayer for those evangelising. And when Paul says being watchful, it's likely that he's referring to, to Jesus' teaching on prayer. 
where Jesus teaches us not just to pray, but to pray and watch, to watch and pray. That is, be alert for opportunities and aware that actually Jesus could return at any moment. And that's still true today. And so we're to pray for gospel opportunities that the mystery of Christ be, be proclaimed. And by the way, the gospel's not a mystery because it's some sort of puzzle to be solved or it's puzzling. It's a mystery because no one would ever have thought about it. No one would ever have known about it if God hadn't made it clear in the gospel. And that is what we should be praying happens all over the world, right here on Tambourine Mountain, down in Yarrabilba, Tambourine Village, etc., that people would understand what God has made plain in the gospel. Now, to some people, it's going to be foolishness. It is. It's going to be foolishness. But to others, to many others, it's actually going to make sense of their entire lives. The Spirit will be at work in them so that when they hear the news, they actually respond in faith and repentance. I love how Paul prays here that God may open a door. Not the door to his prison cell, but a door of opportunity. Here he is in prison, and yet his prayer was that he might bring others to faith in Christ. And you know what? Those prayers are answered. <coughs> I love it when you can look at Scripture and go, oh, yeah, those prayers are actually answered. Paul had a tremendous ministry from within prison to those whom he wrote. to you, <laughs> to those whom he was imprisoned with, to those in the palace guard and to those who came to visit him. But Paul also prays for clarity for himself as he, as he proclaims this, this good news. He prays for clarity. <coughs> when giving sermon feedback, one of my, um, one of my Bible, Bible college lecturers used to love quoting Charles Spurgeon, who once said, look, if there's mist in the pulpit, it's going to be fog in the pews. Mist in the pulpit, fog in the pews, or chairs in this case. It's a way of, of, of saying that if the preacher is unsure or unclear, <coughs> then the congregation is going to be unsure and unclear too. I won't, I won't share how many times you had to give that to me as feedback. But I would ask for prayer for myself and others here and elsewhere who preach and teach that we might be clear. But really, if you think about it, all of us should be praying that we too may have opportunities to proclaim the gospel and that when those opportunities arrive, we do so clearly. And so he goes on, verses 5 to 6, he says, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's fascinating. If you were here last week in Colossians 3, Paul is encouraging the Colossians to live holy lives, he says. Be holy. And yet here, he urges them to engage with outsiders there's no walking away from your non-Christian neighbour. He wouldn't have us compromise, but nor would he have us foster a sort of fortress mentality. 
to reach people, the people need to be within reach. We're not called to live monk-like lives. We're called to live Christ-like lives. And Jesus, he spent time with those whom he wanted to reach. He, he ate with them. He talked to them. He, he challenged them. He, <clears throat> he knew them. He asked them questions. He told them stories, etc. That's what I take it, it means when Paul says, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Literally that phrase is, redeem your time. Redeem your time. Wisdom enables us to combine boldness with tact. Wisdom enables us not only to know what to say, but how to say it and perhaps when. And when we do speak, our conversations are to be seasoned with salt. In the ancient world, the discussion that was seasoned with salt was a way of referring to an interesting discussion, a stimulating, (coughs) enjoyable discussion, right? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to be boring, would it be gracious and pleasant so that we may know how to answer everyone? So the point here is really quite simple. The good news of the gospel, it's universal, <coughs> but it's going to take wisdom to know how to tell it, how to explain it, how to show it to any given individual. So I just want to encourage us not to sort of sleepwalk through our relationships. Be intentional about your prayers and how it is that you spend your time with the many, many unbelievers whom you will inevitably rub shoulders with this week. Think about them for a moment. Family member, friend, colleague, neighbour, your barista. We've been redeemed by Christ. Now we are to redeem the time he has given us. Seize the day. Seize the day. We're all in this together. Gospel work is teamwork, and if you're a Christian, then you are on the team. And finally, you've got to be willing then to <coughs> take one for the team. Right? We all have our part to play, but some of us will be called to give up more than others. Some of us will be called to give up more than others. Earlier I shared that some of my friends from college had, had walked away from, from the faith, but many gave up everything. Like my friend Troy, who sold his house so that he could afford to go to Bible college. Or um, my friend Josh, who packed up his family, went to Albania, the ends of the earth, like Turkey. Well, Paul and the others in prison had, in a sense, taken one for the team. That is, he was suffering for their sakes. And so he says, remember my chains. He's not fishing for sympathy. He's concerned that they remember why he was in chains. He suffers for the sake of the church in order to present them fully mature in Christ. That was Paul's desire for them. It's my desire for you. Maturity. That's been the point of Colossians, hasn't it? Remember the vision statement for the entire letter? He is the one we proclaim, admonishing, 
teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And what have we discovered about maturity in Christ in Colossians? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. That's what maturity is. And I too want your faith to be grounded and grow in Christ. That's my desire for you, for us, as Christ has been brought back into focus in, in the book, in the letter to the Colossians. And I just want to assure you that like Epaphras, um, I am wrestling in prayer for you. And others are wrestling in prayer for you. that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Now, I'm, I'm going to give everyone a, a few moments. I just want us to <coughs> reflect back on our time in Colossians and just spend a quiet moment trying to, trying to recall and process and commit to, to living the truths that we've uh, heard out and so you may want to spend just a moment thinking about way back in chapter 1, remember, how if Christ is supreme in creation and if he is supreme in the new creation, the church, then he ought to be supreme in you. And so what area of your life are you still withholding from him? Well, you might want to think about uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and how all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, not from us, but for us in Christ Jesus. What worldly philosophy is captivating you? And will you pray instead that Christ would captivate you? Perhaps you want to spend a moment thinking about last week, chapter 3, and how you have been raised with Christ and how your life now ought to reflect that. Or perhaps you want to spend a moment thinking about what it would look like for you to make the most of every opportunity this week to redeem your time. So close your eyes and just spend a moment reflecting and praying and then I'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us in Colossians and the way in which it brings Christ back into focus. Father, I pray that we might see him clearly 
so that we will clearly live for him. We pray that your word might go out and bear fruit. First and foremost in our lives, as we not only hear it, but we heed it. And then we ask that your gospel may go forth. We pray that you might do a work in us and in others. Draw many people to yourself. Build them up to maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.